WD here. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Charlie H. Lineweaver. He's an astrophysicist and professor at the Australian National University, and he has published many papers on cosmology, astrobiology, and exoplanetology in renowned scientific journals, including Nature and Scientific American. He'll tell us how NASA detected salty seas underneath the surface of two of Jupiter's moons, and if he thinks we might find life forms there. Hello, Mr. Lineweaver. Hello. Well, I'd like to start off with asking you a pretty big question. How would you define life? Well, my very small answer to that is that I would not try to define life because I think that we're trying to understand what life is. And whenever you have, whenever something has evolved, it cannot be defined. And a good example of that is your eyeball or your head, for example. Let's talk about your head. Now, if you look at the ancestors, your ancestors, and go back about 400 million years, you can see that your ancestor was kind of a fishy kind of thing, maybe a worm, and it had a head. But if you go back another 400 million years, then the thing that was your ancestor didn't really have a head. Any t- And so if you go back another 400 million years, you say, oh, that's not really a head. We can't even know what... So it, it, these things disappear. Anything that has evolved disappears as you go further back in time. So your conception of what you're talking about disappears, goes away, gets deconstructed. Same thing with eyeballs, and presumably the same thing as life. The reason why we're pretty sure of this disappearance is because we have to have a theory that starts out with non-life and then evolves into what we now call life, and we want to understand that transition. And if you artificially impose on this transition, this is life and this isn't, then you will misunderstand all of the many different ways things have changed from non-life to what we currently call life. So you asked the question, how do you define life? I would not define it. I don't think it's helpful when, if you define life when you're trying to understand what life is and how it emerged, how it evolved. We know that there are moons like Europa and Callisto with salty seas underneath their surface. Could you tell us how they were detected and if it is possible to find life forms there? Well, first of all, let's talk about how you detect salty, salt water on, on these planets, on these moons, rather. So if you go to an airport, you go through a metal detector. That metal detector is, has a magnetic field that's changing with time. And if you have, let's say, a, a, a knife or a gun in your pocket, it's a piece of metal, when a magnetic field hits something that's conductive like that, it changes its shape. And so if you're alternating a magnetic field and you have a piece of metal in that alternating magnetic field, it changes the shape of the magnetic field and that can be detected by the, the metal detector. Similarly, when you have a, a moon like Callisto or Europa going through the magnetic field of Jupiter, the magnetic field of Jupiter gets distorted if there is conductive material inside Callisto or Europa. And that detect those distortions have been detected, and that's why we think that there is a conductive fluid inside of Callisto and Europa, and the density of that conductive fluid has to be consistent with the overall density of these moons 
and it is a little bit, it's larger than one gram per cc, which is the density of water, and it's smaller than five grams per cc, which is the density of rock, and so that's how we imply, that's how we infer the existence of salt ocean in Callisto and Europa, and other moons as well. And do you think we might find life forms there? Well, the question of whether we should or should not expect life forms in Europa or Callisto where depends on how life gets started. We do not have a very good idea about how life got started, but there are two leading candidates. One candidate says, ah, you have some warm little pond on some ocean beach where you have water lapping up, you have rocks there, and you have UV photons coming from the sun, and you have air, gases. So a combination of solid, liquid, and gas, plus UV photons, that's one scenario. Let's call that the warm little pond scenario that Darwin talked about. Another scenario is underneath the ocean, underneath two or three kilometers of ocean, where there are hydrothermal vents, where the, essentially the Earth is splitting in half, they're sometimes called mid-oceanic ridges, and there you have magma coming up, lots of hot stuff, hot water, and it's creating all kinds of sm uh, smoking chimneys, black smokers they're called, lots of chemical reactions, and that's probably the second leading candidate for how life got started on Earth. Now, why I mention that is because if the second candidate, if the hydrothermal vent is the way which life emerged on Earth, then it's possible that Callisto and Europa have such scenarios, have such environments underneath their saltwater oceans where there's rock at the, underneath and then water on top. And so maybe if, if that's the scenario, then maybe life could get started there. On the other hand, if we're pretty sure that life needs water, rock, and air, and UV photons to get started, then underneath the, the oceans of Callisto and Europa are not very good candidates. If we do discover alien life forms, what do you think we should uh, do first? Well, you said if, and so I think you've skipped over the most important thing, and that is determining if what you have found is a life form. So that, I think, is much, much harder problem than most people think, because they think, oh, if it's life or is it non-life? Is it life or is it non-life? And that dichotomy is very, very common, and I think it's almost crazy. It doesn't make any sense scientifically, although we go through our life saying, ah, oh, that tree out there is alive, I'm alive, and this the pen is not alive. That I, I would call that almost a false dichotomy. We use it all the time, however, but when we're talking about life elsewhere, it really will be the case that it could be so completely different that it might be something like, you know, a hurricane. You know, I've written a paper called, uh, you know, have we detected life? Well, maybe we have because we've detected hurricanes elsewhere and convection cells. And all these are called, well, they're far from equilibrium dissipative systems. And if you enlarge or generalize the conception of life, then they would be included. And therefore, we've detected life elsewhere. So that's just one example of how the detection of life is much, much harder than we think because we really don't know what life is and we don't know how it got started. And so, but let me answer your question. If you find life on another planet, well, then you have to see, for example, on Mars, there are three missions on the way to Mars right now. Um, if you find life on Mars, then you have to say, you know, am I detecting Earth life here? 
did I bring this life on my rocket ship myself? Because when they launch these rockets, they cannot perfectly sterilize them. All their instruments, they try as hard as they can, but in, in these little nicks and crannies, there could be bacterial life that they couldn't kill. Therefore, we're bringing life to Mars. Some of that might be able to survive on Mars. And then, oh, we detected life. Wait a minute, we're just detecting ourselves. It's like flying in an airplane and taking a picture out of the porthole with a flash. You're really just seeing your own reflection. <laughs> You're an astrophysicist in Australia. Could you tell us if they have an, a space agency or do they cooperate with uh, NASA? They do both. There is a new space agency in Australia and Australia cooperates very closely with NASA. For example, the deep space network NASA uses to communicate with uh, objects that are on the way to Mars, for example, um, is... Uh, right over here. Matter of fact, it's about 10 kilometers from where I'm sitting right now, the Deep Space Network in Tidbit Villa. So Australia is closely connected with the, with NASA, and there are many Australian scientists who work for NASA, for example, at the Jug Propulsion Laboratory in, uh, near Los Angeles. Would you encourage my audience to study astrophysics at ANU? Yes, ANU is a great university, and I would encourage them to study whatever they want, actually, because I think education is the most important thing you can do as a young person growing up, and uh, but also not being bored. Don't let the. I mean, there are a lot of boring teachers, and if you can avoid the boring teachers and find the exciting teachers, that's where you should get your education from. Almost independent of what that topic is. For example, I was very interested in science, but I had some. There were some bad science teachers, and so I started studying English and history because they were great teachers. And then I traveled around the world and said. You know what? I'm studying history, but this is really constraining because I'm just studying Western history. I'm not studying the history of the world and civilizations, and so I started studying world history. And uh, but then I realized that people from all over the world, you know, if you if you study science, you will be certified to practice science on Alpha Centauri. But if you study history, you won't be. You'll be studying something that's narrowly focused on something that's terrestrial. And I guarantee you things you learn in history will not be very relevant to whatever has happened on Alpha Centauri. Thank you very much for this interview, Mr. Lan Weaver. You're welcome. Glad to do it. Find out more about Dr. Charlie Lan Weaver's publications at www.charlielineweaver.com. Stay tuned.